Brooklyn's Gowanus Canal has been called many things over the years. A cesspool, an industrial dumping ground, a blemish. But our guest on this edition of Cityscape says the 1.8-mile canal is also one of the most important waterways in the history of New York Harbor. I'm George Boldarki, joined in the studio by Joseph Alexiou. Joseph is a licensed New York City tour guide and the author of Gowanus, Brooklyn's Curious Canal. Joseph, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So what inspired you to dive so deep into the Gowanus Canal? And I mean that figuratively speaking. (laughs) Only figuratively. (laughs) Um, Simply, I moved to the neighborhood in 2006 without knowing anything about the canal. I knew the neighborhood a little bit. I wanted to live in Brooklyn. And I moved to what I thought was Carroll Gardens. But uh, as I decided upon the apartment that I, that I, the studio that I got, the woman said, oh, by the way, you should know there's this canal around the corner. I hear it's polluted, but don't worry about it. So I went to look at the canal and I was like, what is this? This is so weird. There's so much sky. Is this New York City? And that seed there, where did this come from? What is this? Is where it all really began. Um, And I went to the canal periodically throughout my early days uh, to contemplate, to sit. You know, it was like a relaxation for me. And the more people I met uh, who along the canal or in the neighborhood also had the same questions as me. Where did this come from? Why is it so polluted? How polluted is it? The Lavender Lake, as it's been called. It was given this nickname in the late 19th century for the sheen, the color of the mucus, whatever membrane that had formed on top of it. Um, And as I started looking into it uh, as a hobby, because I'm a history nerd, I found that there wasn't a definitive written story about the whole canal and that it, it really could be a great host as a story. Just how polluted is this canal? It's extremely polluted. So to put it down sharply, approximately three to four hundred million gallons of raw sewage flow into the canal every year. And then sitting on the bottom of the canal is approximately 10 feet on average thick sediment layer of a combination of raw sewage, but also toxic waste, most of which is coal tar. Um, so PAHs, PCBs, heavy metals like mercury and cadmium and, uh, and NAPL, which is an acronym that means non-aqueous phase liquid, which is any, any liquid at room temperature that isn't water. So like acetone and hairspray, anything like that that's ever collected into a disgusting soup of chemicals sitting at the bottom of the canal. Um, and that sediment that I'm describing with the napple and the coal tar, it's 10 miles, uh, 10 miles, 10 feet thick on average, but along the floor of a 1.8 mile long canal, approximately 100 feet wide. So we're talking about a, a layer of sediment, millions of cubic feet of toxic waste and then raw sewage regularly flowing into the canal. What does it smell like? On a day like today, I would say when it stops raining, it'll smell like the inside of a sewer. Um, I've gotten the whiff of eggs, uh, you know, that sort of sulfury smell. You get that gasoline smell, oil smell. Definitely the smell of sewer, the smell of just something not right. And, you know, uh, I, would, I would say that on its best days, the canal smells of urban uh, progress. It didn't start off like this. Oh, yeah. It was once just merely a creek, right? It, it was. It was a creek, a tidal estuary, which means that it was a saltwater inlet that came into the Brooklyn. And um, at the edges of it, most incredibly, were 
these freshwater streams that came from the hills. So what you really had was a saltwater, you know, marsh surrounded by a square mile of thrush and marshes. And, and then you had freshwater pockets that were perfect for growing oysters. And so what you really had was this agricultural wonderland. And, and up to the 1860s, people would still write about how the idyllic park-like qualities of Gowanus near the canal, once you crossed over that bridge, you were suddenly in the countryside again. Did people live along the canal during its early days? People have always lived uh, in settlements near the canal, or the creek rather, but in its early days of industrial use, I would say in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, there were many people, but they were all poor and mostly Irish and German immigrants, and they lived in slums, shanties even. They lived in you know houses with dirt floors, uh, one level, made out of wood boards. You write about a shanty town called Dowd's Island. Dowd, right? Dowd's Island uh, was the original sort of shanty town of, of Red Hook. Um, it eventually became known as Tinkersville or Tinkerville, and it was where people went to get stuff mended, and it was where a great deal of social activity went on, and it it was a big Irish community. Um, there were other places like Kelsey's Alley was one of them. There was an area called um, Darby's Patch. And within Darby's Patch, there was an area called Cabbage Town. Um, and uh, there are many stories of these slums that grew in the area. And along the canal, it was probably the poorest of people. So when did the canal, as we know it today, the canal start yes. to take shape? So the canal really started to take shape. The first designs were submitted in 1848. But I would say that the, the canal itself didn't begin construction until about 1852. And it didn't get finished uh, as we know it, as its final shape until about 1870. So we're looking at almost 20 years of slow construction where parts of the canal will get built. Other parts would still be more uh, marshland looking. And uh, this was due to a variety of different reasons. One was a lack of municipal. Um, the city did not have a group in charge of building the canal. And then uh, there were other financial issues, especially uh, the Civil War, which got in the way of many city projects in New York City and Brooklyn, including the canal. And that's why during the 1860s, it took a long time for stuff to really get moving. So who were the folks behind the canal? Well, there are, there are a few people that I've identified that are really, I mean, there are a lot of human beings that were involved in the decision making behind the canal. But I look at two historical figures, mostly forgotten, um, one by the name of Daniel Richards, who was kind of this uneducated, scrappy entrepreneur who really developed Red Hook and made it into a thriving cultural, uh, cultural commercial place, uh, allowing shipping and docking to happen. And he conceived of the design for the canal and pushed for it to be legislated. Um, but then he wanted to take over the project. And unfortunately, his own political uh, favor fell out in Brooklyn. He became kind of a, um, a pariah for having sold out. It's, you know, usual political stuff in New York. So the person that picked up the project that I think of really as the father of the canal was a man named Edwin C. Litchfield. And Litchfield was a railroad mogul who was a multimillionaire. And in the 1850s, he bought about a square mile of land in Brooklyn that most people considered a useless swamp. And it went from 1st Street to 9th Street in Brooklyn, from the canal all the way to Prospect Park. And now we think of that useless swamp neighborhood today as Park Slope, one mm -hmm. of the most expensive neighborhoods in New York. So what was the primary use of the canal in its early days? When they conceived of the canal, it had a few purposes that they wanted to deal with all at once. One, they really wanted to drain the marshlands around the canal area, the creek area, so that those land uh, lots could be useful for urban uh, you know, building. 
And then the second reason they built the canal was that they needed an outlet for sewers, ostensibly just rainwater. And so that was the other reason why they dug the canal. And then the third was to encourage more shipping and in particular commercial docking. Um, And one of the arguments early that they used on was that, well, we've got all these houses being built. We're going to need lumber yards. So lumber yards around the canal. Well, he, was, he being Daniel Richards, who, who suggested this, was right, but he wasn't just right about lumber yards, brickyards, coal yards, concrete factories, you know, all kinds of chemical works. Huge amount of industry popped up along the canal by the 1890s. So from 1870 to 1890, explosive growth in Brooklyn's commercial and residential life. And then subsequently started the pollution of the canal. That's right. The earliest account of pollution I've seen is 1861, where a man complains to the board of uh, the, the, the board of aldermen to Brooklyn that the stench of the land that he bought at the bottom of Bond Street was uh, the, the smell was so bad from the sewage deposited that it had injured the health of, of his wife and killed his father-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the green, Alderman Green, the man who was sort of reading these notes, said, I have seen this land, and if I'm called as witness, I would surely uh, have to um, testify against the city. I know this land, and I would not accept it as a present it was given to me. But yet, it continued to get worse. Ironically, perhaps you could say it was ironic, the sewer system that's in place, the combined sewer system, and that means that the rainwater and the sewers from your toilets and sinks ultimately go first to the same pipe and then to sewage treatment plants. In that combined sewer system, whenever there's too much rain, and that's often, it overflows into an emergency outfall. That outfall dug in the 1850s was the Gowanus Creek. Ultimately, that has never changed. Hmm. So those combined sewer systems are still spitting raw sewage right now. It's raining today. Right now, there is raw sewage, I guarantee you, flowing into the gorge. Why haven't steps been taken to change this? Steps have been taken. Okay. Um, but ultimately, the steps are never enough because, well, I don't know. I want you to guess almost. What do you think the one thing that the city would be arguing about uh, when it comes to public works? Money. There you go. <laughs> it's always about an engineer, and I found this systematically throughout history. Engineers propose ideas that will either prevent the canal, the canal from getting polluted or fix the canal's pollution. And ultimately, the engineer proposes something that's expensive, and the city official says, how about we do it but cheaper? And this has happened periodically throughout the history of Guana. So the fixes that they propose are either not enough to really solve the problem or – in the in the in the in the best or worst cases, depending on your point of view as a storyteller, they actually make it worse. Um, and so they've tried to address it. They never do enough to address it. The canal today is a federal Superfund site, yes. right? What does that mean exactly? So what a Superfund site means is uh, the Superfund is a program that is administered by the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and it's actually a federal law. Uh, put in place. And the acronym for that law is CERCLA. I forget exactly what it means. But what it does is it seeks out the most toxically polluted sites in the country, usually by heavy industry like coal tar, uh, which comes from the production of manufactured gas, which, by the way, was a primary industry along the canal. Um, and, and there are about 1,300 of these sites in the United States of America. We have, I believe, four now in New York City. Uh, the Gowanus was the first one, followed by Newtown Creek. And what that means ultimately is that the is that the federal government uh, will hire engineers to look at a, a particular toxic site, figure out how to completely remediate that as much as possible. Then identify the parties responsible for polluting it and then charge them the money to ultimately clean up the, 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 the 
site in question. So at what stage are we in this Superfund process? So we are actually moving quite quickly along the process. We are now in a testing phase um, in which they've designed a very particular and very specific detail-oriented cleanup plan for the next 10 years or so. And they're in the middle of testing this phase, which I think is interesting. So um, on the bottom of the canal, I mentioned there's approximately 10 feet of toxic sludge. Uh, The EPA calls this sludge black mayonnaise because of how it looks. And then in that black mayonnaise are the heavy metals, the polycitric aromatic hydrocarbons, all the toxic waste. But under that that uh, mass of, uh, of of sediment is the ground, the natural bottom bed of the canal. That in itself has been it has been infected with raw, with toxic waste. So what the EPA is doing now is they're actually drilling below the bed of the canal testing the soil there to see how polluted it is, and then actually mixing it with a concrete form to create a solid underlayer from which they can scrape up all of this black mayonnaise. Once they have a solid layer there, and this is across the entire canal, they'll put seven more layers of protective covering on top of it Hmm. to prevent any pollution from ever migrating anywhere. Has there ever been a call simply to just fill in the Gowanus Canal? The call to fill in the Gowanus Canal or creek area has been on the table mentioned by people every generation starting in the 1830s. People always suggest this, just like we filled in the Collect Pond in downtown Manhattan or Canal Street in uh, in Manhattan. But it always comes down to a question of cost. The truth is, is that the Gowanus is at the bottom of the watershed, which means that it's surrounded by these high hills and all the rainwater falls into this basin that is there. And the creek, that saltwater estuary, is the very bottom of that basin. So if you even were to try and fill it in, you'd have to find another place for all that water to go. That water remains the main source of nature's reminder that we are not in control of Brooklyn or anywhere, really. And to fill it in would cost like a billion dollars, and it would still not solve the problem of where do these sewers exit. So while people have called for this, the expense, even now, most recently, some of the kookier neighborhood people have called for a sea gate that would come in and cover the mouth of the Gowanus to stop it from overflowing. Well, if the sea level rises, that sea gate isn't going to do very much. And that's the attitude has always been, well, we'll just do more with our modern day engineering to fix this. That sort of, let's say, hubristic attitude of human beings, our modern day engineering started with 19th century steam shovels. So if they thought back then they could conquer the Gowanus and its waters with their technology, and we look back now and sort of giggle and say, well, that was cute of them. Imagine what they'll say in 200 years with environmental engineering and the kind of sort of like scalpel and spoon, you know, method that we use now to do things. Um, Ultimately, the city needs to choose the best options available to them and make use of them, um, and that it means working with the EPA in this case. Isn't the vision, though, now with this cleanup process to make the Gowanus the Venice of New York City? That has been a wonderful real estate sort of jargon-esque uh, uh, pitch that uh, certain neighborhood people have pushed for a very long time. Venice is sinking, and it is covered in raw sewage, so if that is the vision that we have, <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, the truth is that it will never be swimmable in our lifetimes, although... I was on the canal on a rowboat as recently as last week. So recreationally, it can be used. And I think that's where we'd like it to be, where you could fall in for a second and not really worry about raw sewage, as opposed to now, where it could happen at any time. An environmental activist, though, did recently swim yes. in the Gowanus, right? Christopher Swain, Mr. Christopher Swain. I question his uh, decision-making skills and process in swimming the canal without a face covering on his supposed hazmat suit. Uh, I would not follow his 
example, even to sell books. I have said that he is not the most intelligent person for following this course of action. I think it's a bit self-aggrandizing and has very little to do with raising awareness of actually cleaning the Gowanus waterway. Um, although I do think that he has chutzpah. This is Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Our guest today is Joseph Alexiou, author of Gowanus, Brooklyn's Curious Canal. Is there life in the Gowanus? There is. There are fish in the Gowanus, little minnows. Someone claims to have caught a three-eyed catfish just yesterday, which was on Gothamist. I think that was a, a hoax, a setup. Uh, I saw cormorant fishing in the canal. So there are birds like herons that come in. Uh, there are not frogs, eels, and other kinds of por- uh, tortoises, the things that used to be in the canal. Um, but there is plant growth uh, thanks to the oxygenation brought in by that flushing tunnel. Um, I I didn't mention it before, but one of the means to clean the canal is a flushing tunnel that was originally built in 1911. And it was intended to create current flow, bringing in very clean water from the East East River and then pushing it along the canal. Nowadays, we know that we can't create a current, but we can uh, increase the oxygen level. That allows for more plant life, which allows for more fish, which allows birds to come in and swoop in. So there is life now, and uh, we can definitely say that that's because of the flushing tunnel, for sure. There are creatures who made their way into the canal but didn't make their way out, like Sludgy yes. the Whale. Sludgy, right? Sludgy the Whale, there was a dolphin last year. There have been many whales that have found their way in the canal and never made their way out. What's um, the story of Sludgy? So Sludgy, uh, I opened the book with Sludgy. It is actually uh, a sad sort of melancholy tale of a baby minky whale who washed up at the mouth of the Gowanus right after a nor'easter in April of 2007. And uh, Sludgy was nicknamed Sludgy after Fudgy the Whale, which is a Carvel ice cream cake and Sludgy, the sludge at the bottom of the Gowanus. And immediately she was, I mean, became national news. There was an AP story, the Daily News, all these blogs. Everyone talked about her. And people just thought it was incredible that this whale was swimming this baby at the mouth of the canal, so much so that they left work early. They brought their kids out of school to take a picture. Within one day, Sludgy died. And it was a big reminder to people, including uh, there was one uh, famous blogger, journalist named Rob Guskind, who said, for Sludgy to be swimming at the mouth of the canal is uh, right after a rainstorm is the worst time because she's swimming in a toxic soup of churned up waste and raw sewage. Um, and Sludgy was such a media micro heroine that she was featured in the front page of the city section of the Times. And even Mayor Bloomberg's, when they found out the whale died, was at the steps of City Hall. And he said, as a quote, um, my thoughts are with the whale. Mm. So for me, though, Sludgy was this big cultural moment where people became people. A certain generation of New Yorkers became very much aware of Gowanus and its massive pollution. And they realized that surrounding it were these hip, awesome neighborhoods. And right in the middle of New York City, we have an open sewer toxic waste site, something you wouldn't expect uh, in anywhere but you know the worst of a third world country. What kind of development are we seeing right now sprout up along the canal? Because there is development sprouting yes, up there. all kinds. Well, there's commercial developments of various kinds. There's been a Whole Foods, which is up, a long-term project that finally came to fruition. The the state of New York set up a building for their parole board one block, not one block, 10 feet from the canal. Um, and then, of course, there are numerous. Um, there is one major housing development going up along the canal, which is being built by a group called the Lightstone Project, when the full project is finished, it will bring 800 units, approximately 20% of which are affordable, to the banks of the canal uh, right on top of where the raw sewage flows by during the worst of the rainstorms. Um, that will bring in approximately 700 to 1,400 new residents to the area. Does that surprise you? 
that people will be living along the canal in Well, I've known about this development for years. I am surprised that it's happening. It does surprise No, it does not surprise me that people now want to live along the canal. What never ceases to amaze me is the ignorance of human beings. That building was flooded. That site of that building was completely flooded, like up to your hip during mm. Hurricane Sandy. And raw sewage still flows by it regularly. And the actual changing of that zoning from manufacturing to what they call mixed-use residential happened in the community uh, uh, several years ago, very much with a lot of protest. And so we were surprised, we being the community, that the city was willing to change it at all, especially since like five years earlier they had said something no to a different a poorer developer that wasn't lobbying them you know at the tune of $180,000 a year to do a similar building trans uh, uh you know change and they wouldn't let it happen in this case they did let it happen i'm surprised that people are not more keenly aware of what exactly they're moving next to but i don't think they care because new york is very expensive and there's nowhere else to go and that by the way is exactly why the poor people lived in shanties near the canal they just dealt with the fact that every four weeks or so they would be up to their ankles in water in their Mm -hmm. own homes there's some pretty fascinating architecture around the canal isn't there yes um my favorite is the romanesque revival architecture that popped up around in the turn of the century but what you really get is some fantastic red brick brownstone buildings, warehouses, factories, that really funky industrial gritty architecture that at the same time defines New York and also defies what the shape of the city is. One of my favorite buildings is the former ASPCA headquarters, uh, the Association for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, has a site right across the headhouse on Butler Street at the at the head of the canal. And that is because Gowanus area was uh, many, uh, many stables were located there because of all the horses that were parked at the time. And uh, outside of this uh, beautiful building, which is about three stories tall and has all these details of early 20th century kind of monumental architecture uh, is a, a granite horse trough. Uh, that horses used to drink out of. There's um, also a building there called the Bat Cave. The Bat am I Cave. Right? So the Bat Cave is our favorite Romanesque revival building. It's about five or six stories tall, and it was called the Bat Cave after it was abandoned uh, and used by squatters as a place to do heroin and and probably make up music and a lot of really interesting urban graffiti was done there. Um, the Bat Cave was originally the power station for the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, and it powered all of the trolleys that drove across Brooklyn. And so it was it was the interior of the building, which became a squatter haven, was home to these four massive steam engines that generated electricity. What is interesting uh, and historically interesting for some may be that across the street was the second Washington Park, which was a baseball park. And that was where the earliest games of the Dodgers, or the precursors of the Dodgers were played huh. before they moved to Ebbets Field. That was also where all of the trolleys parked. So the Dodgers, which were, came from the nickname Trolley Dodgers because of all the trolleys in Brooklyn and all the people that were dodging the trolleys, you might have argued that the Gowanus Brooklyn Rapid Transit power station and the Dodgers sta- uh, stadium being so close to each other maybe gave birth to this name. Huh. Speaking of names, where did the name Gowanus huh. come from? According to the historian Martha Bache Flint, who uh, wrote in the early 20th century, Gowanus is one of the most elusive place names in the history of New York. There is an apocryphal story about a, a Native American chief named Gowane, who was supposedly the sachem of a local band of Indians, sachem being the chief of, of Canarsie or Lenape uh, Native Americans. We have seen the land patents from the 1630s where British and French and Huguenot colonists bought land from Native American uh, landowners. None of them were called Gowanus. 
So there are some words in the Lenape that it could mean like briar patch. However, I have a crazy sort of theory and uh, it comes from this. So the, the Lenape natives spoke a language called Muncie and they're part of the Delaware or the Algonquin group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then upstate, there's an Iroquois group of natives we may know, the Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, Onondaga, and Mohawk. And they speak an Algonquin language. However, up in upstate New York, there are two words uh, which just set my heart on fire. One is Gowanda, which is a village near Pennsylvania. And the other is a creek called Gowanasike. Hmm. Gowanda, the village, is supposedly an Oneida word, which means low-lying area among hills. That describes the Gowanus directly because the Gowanus was a low-lying area among hills. Um, and then the other word, Gowanasike, or Kawanask, is a creek. And that creek's name is supposed to translate is body of water on a long island. Huh. And even in the book where I found this creek listed in 1901, it says the body of water that this creek is talking about must have dried up. And there is no long water. I mean, there is no long island here. So that must have been filled in. So I thought body of water on a long island. That is Gowanus. Gowanusike. And so I called the professor emeritus of Algonquin and Iroquois languages at the Smithsonian Institute. And he said, it's a brilliant theory. It's also impossible. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a journalist. And it was I a valiant effort. It was a valiant effort. But I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in there must be a great story there for us to how Gowanus got its name. But the truth is that we think it's Native American. Nobody knows. It's certainly older than New York or even Brooklyn as a name. Another great story, the Gowanus Canal played a role in a Revolutionary War battle. That's right. So one of the largest pitched battles of the American Revolutionary War happened right near the Gowanus Creek, approximately in the area of Park Slope, 5th Avenue and 3rd Street. And what we had was 6,000 American forces approximately against twenty to 30,000 British and Hessian forces. So we lost this battle. And the way that we lost it is by getting surrounded on three sides by the British with the creek behind the American forces. And um, there was really no way to win the battle. And so there were only a few options. They were to surrender, uh, escape, or die. So surrender was really not an option for the Americans because they were fighting for a freedom cause and they would rather be killed than uh, you know, surrender their cause. So dying was a second option, and that did happen quite a bit. Um, but that happened mostly through the, the medium of escape. Some people escaped to the woods, but a lot of people tried to escape across what was the Gowanus Creek at the time. And it was high tide, 20 feet deep in places, and a lot of people were shot, drowned, killed. But a majority of people swam across. Um, and then covering their escape were a group of brave and courageous soldiers known as the Maryland 400. They were the most well-equipped soldiers with the most training, and they covered the escape from what is known as the Old Stone House of Gowanus, which is now sitting in a park on Fifth Avenue and Third Street, a replica of which still exists, this house with two-foot thick stone walls. So the Gowanus Creek, what it did, uh, what the role it played is that once all the, the soldiers escaped across, including the remaining Maryland 400, the British and Hessian soldiers stopped at the creek and they shot their cannons across, but they didn't pursue. They stayed where they were. They had been fighting all night, so they literally stopped and ate breakfast. The creek made a natural barrier between the two groups, and they stopped the British from totally overwhelming the Americans. So because of this, I argue that um, what happened is is the Americans stayed um, on the other side of the creek for a day and a half. They were in their fortified, you know, Washington's fort. They had this, you know, uh, big walls protecting them and all of that. Um, But they knew that the British would eventually take them over. And so in order to regroup in Manhattan, Washington organized this daring middle-of-the-night escape where they all waited for nightfall, and there's a story of fog, and the fog lifts, 
and all the Americans are gone, all 6,000 of them. And they've made multiple trips across the East River in rowboats from mostly fishermen from New England. And um, it is arguable, and I like to say that if the canal hadn't been there, the creek hadn't been there, what would have stopped the British from taking them over and capturing them then? Hmm. Because what happened was Washington went back to Manhattan, realized he made a huge error in strategy with Battle of Brooklyn, regrouped and ultimately escaped up Manhattan. That might not have happened had there been no natural barrier there. So I'd like to think, what would have happened had there been no creek? Would there be even an America? You've said that you can follow American history by following things that happened along the Gowanus Canal. It is like a litmus test. It is like a uh, it, is, it is like a focal point. It is it is like this thumbprint on history because it is water. And even though it has dynamic nature, it's not moving. It's not going anywhere. And so you can always count on it being there. You can't always count on Canal Street being there. It used to be a canal. Um, Broadway, very old street. But, you know, 34th Street, not so much. The canal has always been there and had always been either a a boon uh, to help Dutch colonists grain, you know, ground their grain or an impediment to the growth of Brooklyn as a city or a boon by providing transportation and one of the most important commercial thoroughfares of the 20th century. So you can follow New York's history and Brooklyn's history through the lens of this creek. And in doing so, you can follow the history of all America. I found by looking at stories I found a story about a protest, a coal, a coal-related protest, because I was looking at the, the searching for Gowanus Creek and coal, and I found out about a coal, a nationwide coal protest in 1901 having to do with coal workers. I didn't know about that, but I knew about the canal and its coal issues, and so that's what I think of when I think, well, I can learn about anything from the lens of what was going on around the canal. So, where do you see the story going from here? Gowanus is a big real estate story now. It is a question of what do we do with uh, our post-industrial spaces? How do we clean up the worst toxic messes? And how do we capitalize on the sudden hipness of these post-industrial spaces? Um, I see a huge development battle happening and I see protests happening from the community. And I see ultimately a big fight between the EPA and the city as to implementing the EPA's plan for stopping all of the sewage from going into the canal. And I know it's happening right now, which is why I see it taking place over the next few years, for sure. Um, There will be a fight over the placement of a public pool, a park, some retention basins, and ultimately, who owns Gowanus? The book is Gowanus, Brooklyn's Curious Canal. Joseph, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Joseph Alexiou is a licensed New York City tour guide. His book, Gowanus, is published by New York University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.